I think that the key for exponential entrepreneurs navigating a lot of uncertainty in the world as it exists right now, the magic is giving yourself permission to get out of beta mode, which is where the vast majority of the world is operating right now, into alpha so that you can learn and be strategic and plan. And then even sometimes down into a theta brainwave state, really chill so that you can come up with new solutions to old problems and be creative and innovative. And that I think is the path forward even more so in this era of artificial intelligence. And I think artificial intelligence most likely will probably take over the beta brainwave mode stuff. So the more that we can be alpha and theta now, the more likely it is we're going to be successful moving forwards. Welcome to the business of doing business. I'm your host, Dwayne Carrigan. With 35 years in business and close to 30 ventures across 12 industries, I've seen a lot. Amid the celebrity allure of entrepreneurship, many exceptional entrepreneurs remain shadowed. Here, I team up with these hidden talents to unveil their challenges and successes. Dive in with me to unearth entrepreneurial gems, learn from our experiences, and get educated. Greg Wells, Dr. Greg Wells, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so glad to see you. I'm elated that you're here. First of all, thank you for, for coming. I appreciate it. Dwayne, so good to see you, buddy. I know we were talking about this for a while. I'm glad we finally managed to pull it together and super psyched to spend some time with you and chat. It's going to be great. I'm going to actually shout out to Stu Saunders, who's been on the podcast before, who introduced us. And it's interesting. So I was saying to the producer before the show that you know, the 15 years that I spent with Tony Robbins, I'm a bit of a snob when it comes to watching people on stage and listening to them speak. And that's how we kind of first got introduced. And I got to say, as soon as you got up and started talking and, and we'll get into what you do, but I looked at my wife and I'm like, we got to get Greg on the podcast. This guy's phenomenal. And so your whole stage presence and how you speak is, is, is unbelievable, man. I really appreciate that. That means the world to me, especially given, you know, what you've done and who you've seen and, you know, the bar is high. So I appreciate, uh, I appreciate that. And uh, hopefully you and your wife got something out of it and maybe we can share some ideas with your audience. It's going to be awesome. It was awesome. It was so awesome. So I'll give you a formal intro here, or I'll try to do the best I can because it's the only thing that I actually try to come prepared on the, uh, on the podcast for is like, I really believe in, you know, serendipity or, or grace or the universe just showing up and guiding two people into an interesting conversation. I don't come actually with any questions, but I, I did your bio. I've read your book. It's phenomenal, by the way, your most recent book, you have five, but Powerhouse, which I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. But so Dr. Greg Wells, sorry, listeners to divert here, but you have your master's and PhD in exercise and respiratory physiology. And correct me if I'm wrong after, but I'm just giving you kind of my high level notes. And you're, I would just say like an adventurist and an exercise endurance sports enthusiast, which I would love to hear more about that. And, you know, I know you've done some ultra marathons, Ironmans, I can't ever pronounce it, but you did a Big bike tour in Africa. <laughs> tour de Tour de Afrique, is it? The Tour d'Afrique. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. In 2003. 20 years ago. I can't even believe it's been that long. Crazy. Oh, really? Wow. Well, I mean, you're still at it because you're doing a lot of like mountain climbing and 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 ice climbing and all that kind of stuff. I did want to read one thing that I'm gonna like just read it out because I, I won't get it accurately if I don't. But when I was doing the research on you, like your moonshot. 
which um, I have a couple of questions about, but your moonshot is to solve the billion person problem of sleeplessness, reducing by, I think it was 25%, obesity by 35%, inactivity by 85%, and mental health by 20%. There's kind of the subnote to it, which is I want to achieve this by making our workplace and schools, I'm going to let you share it. But basically, you know, you want to do it in the workplace and in schools. Uh, when you go there, it's to get healthier, improve your well-being, reach to your true potential. And so I think that in itself is like a whole conversation. There's going to be so many things that we're going to be able to talk about. But essentially, like I kind of nut you down as you're a cross between an Andrew Huberman and a David Goggins. <laughs> right. like, That's funny. You, I like you know, that. That's cool. Thank you. <laughs> Two pretty epic humans, man. So I'm, even if I'm in the same conversation, that's that's super cool. Well, I, honestly, I do. I think what you have to speak about is, you know, shaping people's lives, improving them, improving their longevity, improving their health span, your experience. And it all kind of started too from, you know, your own personal incident when you were a teenager, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But ladies and gentlemen, that's my introduction to Dr. Greg Wells. This guy is a fabulous human being. And uh, I'm going to pre-call it right now. Pull out your notebook and your pen because you're probably going to want to write a lot of stuff down. Uh, so so that's that's my pre-frame. Good to see you, bud. Good to see you too, buddy. And thank you so much for that. You know, ultimately, it's just about helping people. If I you know, always come back to this, what do I love to do the most? I love to coach. I love to teach. I love to share ideas. And what I've discovered, I think I'm pretty good at is taking really complicated science and making it understandable for people. So that's what I'm leaning into more these days, just doing more public speaking, more podcasts, more books. And have the opportunity to, to share these ideas with your audience is amazing. You know, and as you mentioned, like imagine if we could make schools places that when you go there, you get healthier, you improve your well-being, you act, you reach your potential. Some schools, absolutely, but imagine if we could do that with all schools. Similarly, we all spend a lot of time at work. Imagine if we could make our workplaces places that when you go there, you get healthier mentally, physically, emotionally, because un questionably, that's going to unlock our performance, which means that, you know, the company will do better too. Like we want to be successful, but do it in a healthy way. And that's what it's all about now. And you know, it's interesting when I read your moonshot, I do have a side question, but Peter Diamandis, like that's where P Peter, that's the first time I heard moonshot is, are you at Abundance 360, you know, Peter, or is that kind of the relationship? Yeah, absolutely. So that's where that came from. Right. And it's written in the inside of my journal and uh, you know, I literally wrote down Peter's moonshot and then used that as a tactic to work through coming up with my own. I did his 10, you know, the 10 day training program that he runs on that to come up with your own moonshot. And that's the one that resonated. I don't worry so much about reaching a billion people, but the numbers that it fascinate me are that 25% of the population diagnosed sleeping challenge. We have 35% of our population that struggles with obesity and, and overweight. We have 85% of our population that doesn't get enough physical activity to prevent a chronic disease. And one in five people are struggling with mental health. And the reality is we all know someone who's struggling with mental health. So it's actually everybody is struggling with mental health now. Depression, anxiety were the ones that I talk about because they're mild to moderate. The more severe ones are out of my realm of, of what I can influence. So I figure if I can help people to sleep better, then that makes it a lot easier to make good decisions around the foods that we eat, which then obviously improve our health and well-being, give us more energy so you can get out there and get a workout in, or even just go for a walk. It doesn't even need to be a workout. 
And we know that physical activity improves mental health. If you then, if your mental health is a little bit better, guess what? You sleep better. We create this positive upward cycle of wellness, which is really what I want to try to enable people to achieve. Because right now, for far too many people, we're on this downward spiral, right? 45% of the population right now is struggling with burnout. Uh, and so there's a lot of work to do, but I think that if we just do it, you know, one handshake at a time, one little conversation at a time, I think we can make a dent in the universe and, and make it a little bit better. Well, it's guys like you that are going to do it. And so you've thrown out a few stats here that, which is crazy, 45% of people are facing burnout. I really would love to go back when you talk about inactivity being 85%, like that statistic blows my mind. I'm a pretty active guy. Uh, so I would you know, obviously I don't think I fall in that 85% category, but I do think when I listen to you talk about mental health and sleep, sleeping and all that kind of stuff, I think, man, if you have an active day, it helps so much. And then one of the things that reading your book, and again, I'm, I had somebody on just that we aired actually this week, re-aired him and I'm a bit of a book snob, but like your book, and I'm actually going to flash it for those people who are watching powerhouse by Greg Wells. This book is it's almost not even like a book. It's like a resource manual. It's one of the best resource manuals that I've read in regards to just living healthy. You know, you get so many things off of the internet, you know, reels, people are listening to Instagram and their social media, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. And there's lots of valuable stuff out there. You know, don't get me wrong, but the way you put it in this book and how concise it is, it's fantastic. I wouldn't mind actually just kind of breathing into this a little bit. And actually I use the word breathing because it's the first chapter of the book. That was the one that kind of blew me away right away, I guess, selfishly, because I would say it's the one area as active as I am and my wife and I are and our whole family. But the breathing is probably one piece that, that we've probably let slip. And I've committed to, because of your book, I've committed to 2024, really ramping up my breathing and my consciousness around breathing. But inactivity, so maybe we can start with inactivity and then maybe move into the book. I don't know. This is going to go a lot of places. We can take it wherever we want to. And I mean, those two are interconnected, right? And the really cool thing is that if we do nothing, like if you lie on the bed and you close your eyes and you just relax, the great thing is, is your brain is going to send enough signals down into your body that you're going to breathe with no worries. You don't actually have to consciously think about breathing. It's going to happen. Even when you're asleep, we breathe, which is awesome because it keeps us alive. But the cool thing that we've discovered is that if you change your breathing patterns deliberately, you can alter your physiology. So for example, if you take a nice deep breath in and then a very long exhale, that calms down your nervous system and decreases the feelings of distress, for example. And so that, that birthday candle breath, right? Like we, children will do that naturally. You see little kids, they'll sigh every once in a while. It's awesome to see. And we can do that too. So if there's a point during the day when you feel like you're tense and you're just like, man, I really need a reset right now. Just like, and if you just do three of those, you'll feel completely different. And that's a great little tiny practice that you can do anywhere, anytime. No one will even notice that you're doing it and it'll make a huge difference for you. On the other end of the spectrum, if you need to psych up, you can do these short, fast little hyperventilation just for even 10 seconds, right? Like, right? You see athletes doing that right before they go out to compete. They're like exhaling hard. That's a way of waking your physiology up, increasing your stress to get you ready to perform, which is also important. You have an important sales meeting if you're about to walk into a test and you notice that you're a little bit tired, right? Like there's ways of sparking us up. 
point being with all of this is that we can alter our physiology through our breathing. So it's kind of cool that we can adopt breathwork practices that then enable us to get into control of how we are feeling through our breath. It's almost like your breath and action of breathing deliberately then alters the way that you think, which then alters the way that you feel and gets us back into a place where we're able to either calm ourselves down if that's what we need or psych ourselves up if that's what we need as well. So it's pretty neat how much of an effect breathing can have on our physiology. Yeah. So as you were saying that, like, there's a couple of things that, I mean, I, I would say for sure, personally, you know, whenever I feel like things are kind of ramping up inside my body and I have some physiological kind of indicators that tell me, you know, that's when I do take that conscious breath and, and say, okay, is this true? Is it really true? You know, I ask myself, I have a series of questions that I ask myself and it kind of brings me down. And I think like for people listening, like they might go, okay, yeah, yeah, I get that. Like that makes, that's pretty common sense. Where's the optimization and the ultimate ult optimization when, and I, I would say, I'll use maybe the word intention, where people use breathing for intention in order to improve to the next level. I kind of group people, you know, there's these people who are just, you know, they're letting the world or their own conscious just take over for them and, and whatever happens, happens. And so I think like there's, you address it in your book where there's different levels of breathing. I don't know if maybe you could just talk about that a little bit and, and how people can take it wherever they are from, you know, the basic of, I have no conscious awareness of my breath or whatever, and it just happens and shit, I don't know how I live. Uh, to the people who have intention and then those people, whether if they are athletic or if they are high performers, how do they crank it to the next level? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there obviously. And just to get started, the most important thing is just building your awareness. And it's so interesting that meditation, like a core practice that so many high performers adopt that improves your health and well-being too, not just your performance. But one of the anchors that's commonly used in meditation is breath. So you close your eyes, you relax, you bring your attention to your breath and you count your breaths and you watch your breaths as they go by. And then when you notice that you're distracted and that your mind has wandered, you bring your attention back to your breath. And that's the beginning of building some awareness around your breath and how you breathe. And so it's a very cool tool that can be used for improved mindfulness and vice versa. So that's sort of the starting point. The next level when it comes to breathing without question has to do with building more space between some sort of a stimulus that occurs in your life and your reaction to that stimulus. Let's say you see something on social, it makes you feel not awesome, uh, you question its truth and you're like getting frustrated, you notice that you're having this reaction. The beautiful thing about taking a breath in that moment, it doesn't have to be social, it could be someone says something in a meeting or Maybe something happens at home that makes you feel a little bit stressed. <sighs> that little breath just gives you a little bit of space and time between the stimulus and your reaction. Now, if those two things are back to back, if there's a stimulus and all of a sudden you're like snapping, that's a reaction. Usually that's out of our control. That's very biological and it's a lot of programming that goes into that. And it is what it is. It's rarely awesome. It's rarely optimized. The more time and space that we give ourselves between stimulus and whenever we do next, that moves from then being a reaction to a response. 
And I love thinking of it in terms of our responsibility, not responsibility in terms of like what we're supposed to be doing, but response dash ability, your ability to respond to a situation intentionally. And so what I think breath work does in that moment is just buys you a little bit of time. And it'll feel like a million years for you, but the rest of the world around you, it's like three seconds. They can wait, right? Just a few seconds for you to take a breath and be like, huh. And it's actually a chance for you to be contemplative, for you to think, for you to be like, what is it that I actually want to do next? And I'm not perfect at this by any stretch of the imagination. This week, I got an email, it set me off, got super frustrated with it. And I was about to send a response and Judith, my wife was like, do not send that email, just breathe. <laughs> and I was like, right. Okay. And I was like, delete, <laughs> we'll send that tomorrow and try to deal with that a little bit better. Right. So stage one, mindfulness, bring your awareness and build that up, become aware of your breathing. Step two is use breathing to create a gap between stimulus and response. The bigger that gap is, the more intentional it becomes, the more it turns into response ability. And then if you want to actually use this to elevate your performance, then we can do things like in the morning, when you wake up, you can do activating breathing patterns. If you want to check this out, there's a very cool app called Othership. I think you can get it at othership.us. It's um, my buddy, Robbie Bent's company that built that app. It's super cool. I use, they do breath work to music. I love listening to it. So that's a, a way for you to get psyched up in the morning. My son uses sleep casts at night from Headspace. He's only nine, and that helps him to calm down at the end of his day because they lead you through little stories, and there's a little bit of breath work incorporated there, which is really, really neat. So that's sort of a way of bookending your day using breath work to either get you going or to calm you down. If you want to use this in sports, it becomes very interesting. It doesn't have to be sports. It can be your physical training. Breath work really helps us with that too. If you think about getting into the weight room, what are we taught to do? We're taught to exhale on the contraction part of the movement, which increases your strength and your power. So we always incorporate breathing patterns with anything that we are doing in the gym. And then in rhythmical repetitive activities like walk, run, jog, swim, bike, paddle, anything where you're doing a rhythmic repetitive movement, what happens is that your breathing becomes entrained with the movement and becomes hyper-efficient and perfectly titrated, which means like sort of linked up to your oxygen and carbon dioxide balance inside your body. And when we can get that moving efficiently and effectively, the work of breathing decreases, more blood flow then goes away from your lungs to your arms and legs and makes the activity easier. So there's all sorts of different ways in which you can use this. You can use it to help your psychology. You can use it to help your physiology. You can use it to bookend your days. You can use it to bring attentional awareness training to your mind to enable you to get control over your mind. So loads of different things there that, that all make a difference for us. In the book you talk about, well, there's a couple of things that I wouldn't mind asking about is one, you do end up talking about in the book, how breathing and oxygen into the mitochondria of the cell. And I, I was kind of, I'm not going to lie, I was kind of geeking out on that a bit because, you know, I was never a good student in school and I never really understood biology and you know, but I'm big on physiology and I'm, I'm big on using my physiology to empower myself to do things. But I really found it interesting how important this really is to developing the cell and creating optimization. And I'm probably not using the proper words, so I'd let you describe it. The other piece that, you know, was, was I was going to ask you about, you know, your last explaining of breath work is, have there ever been any studies done on how much breath work can help with your mental health and really helping you gain 
consciousness over yourself rather than just letting yourself go. I mean, you, I chuckled when you told that story about Judith telling you not to send the email. I mean, like my, my, my wife would be telling me that two, three times a day, I know. you know, a few years ago and until I've figured out how to calm myself down quite a bit over the last few years. But I'm curious if you could share a couple of those things. Yeah, no, I'm I'm still working on managing the the fire internally. At some point, twenty year, twenty five years into this journey, I'm still practicing. But well, we're brothers from another mother. Then <laughs> right, it's okay. If it was just all flat, then it would be pretty boring. But and if you don't care, then you're not going to get fired up, right? So it's all it's all part of just balancing it all out. You know, the interesting thing about breath work and using our breathing deliberately is that it enables us to actually fuel ourselves. We'll breathe unconsciously just because the metabolism of our bodies drives our breathing. It's very, very tightly controlled. When you breathe in, you inhale oxygen. That oxygen goes into your bloodstream. Your heart then pumps that blood throughout your body to fuel your muscles, your digestive tract, your brain, your skin, your bones, your spinal cord, all of it. And all of those different tissues use the oxygen to help break down the foods that you've eaten to create energy that you then use for all of the processes inside your body, movement, thinking, digestion, all of it. That pro- the metabolism that happens when you think, when you move, when you digest creates a waste product called carbon dioxide. And the beautiful thing is that as oxygen moves off the hemoglobin molecule in your blood and goes into the tissues, your hemoglobin molecules then absorb all of that CO2, that carbon dioxide, carry it back to your lungs, and then you exhale that CO2 out. And so when we breathe, intentionally and deliberately, we maximize the amount of oxygen in our bloodstream and we're effectively getting rid of the CO2 out of our bodies. Now that will happen completely naturally. Your body controls that very, very well. Uh, Like a good example of that is that if you take a nice deep breath in and you hold your breath for as long as possible, your CO2 levels will eventually increase and you will take a breath because your physiology will drive you to take that breath. You'll feel that sensation of breathlessness and eventually you're going to breathe. Like no matter how motivated you are, your physiology will override your psychology and take control and get rid of that CO2. So it's very tightly controlled. But if we breathe intentionally, say a few deep breaths to start your day, you're you know making sure that all the CO2 is cleared out of your, your blood and you're making sure that your blood is nicely oxygenated and flooding through all of those tissues, which is really, really fantastic. So it's a really cool practice that you know enables us to have the most possible energy because if your tissues have all the oxygen that they need, then they're going to be able to break down the foods that you've eaten to create the energy to fuel whatever it is that you're doing during the day that you care about the most. So it's a pretty neat little energy driver and it's all geared towards that cellular respiration that happens in little structures called mitochondria, which are in almost every single cell in the body. If there was a practice, not I don't want to beat breathing to death here, but I do want to, the one piece that I would love to just kind of leave the audience with is, is in your opinion or based on your experience, is there a conscious process throughout the day? Like how much more could I optimize my physiology, my health, both now and long-term in the future to, if I had a conscious I'll call it ritual or exercise program or breathing program is probably a bit the better word where I, if like every one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, I just did, you know, a 30 second exercise with my breathing that would get me longevity, peak performance, all that kind of stuff. You know, if there was like a gateway drug to breath work, I would say it's probably box breathing. 
and box breathing is a tactic or tool or a tactic or strategy that's used by firefighters, by police officers, by first responders, by some military operatives. And what box breathing does is it just enables you to breathe through difficult circumstances that are perceived by you as being very, very stressful. And so if you practice this, the cool thing is, is when you're under pressure, you'll do it naturally. And so what box breathing is, is it's very simple. It's just four seconds in, four seconds hold, four seconds out, and four seconds hold. Four seconds in, hold, out, and hold. And if you were to do that like <laughs> a few times, it like if you were to do three or four rounds of box breathing, just like let's say five breaths, right? 20 seconds each, it's a couple minutes. And if you were to do that at the start of your day, before you go to school, before you go to work, on a consistent basis, that's a practice that you will learn and you will use it in a difficult meeting. You'll use it when you're nervous. You'll use it when you're tired. Now, this amazing moment, I had the opportunity to commentate a couple of Olympic games. And at one of the Olympics that I commentated, uh, there was a skater, a figure skater named Joanie Rochette. She lost her mom right before the Olympics. She went out to compete and the crowd went crazy to support her. And she got super nervous. You could see it. Like she literally was almost moved to tears before she even started. And so she skated back over to her coach and you can see that she did three rounds of box breathing to calm herself down, took a drink of water and went out and executed the performance of a lifetime to win a bronze medal. So when we practice this, you learn it, you feel it. Then at critical moments during the day, when you need to get yourself under control mentally, physically and emotionally, you'll default to that almost automatically. So if there's like one practice that I would say like, try it out practice it and it will be the unlock to helping you feel better at difficult times, I think box breathing would be the one. I was going to say the way you've laid out your book, uh, I tried that and I've tried, actually, I tried all the breathing exercises. You have like, I don't know how many there are. There's got to be a dozen of them, different breathing exercises in your book. You know, I was really interested in that for, I think a number of reasons, but um, the way you've laid your book out is like, it's really, really interesting from the perspective of, you know, you kind of broke it out into four sections or chapters, whatever you want to call them. And one is breathing. The next one is movement, energy, and then thriving. I loved how you, and guys, I, I can't encourage you enough. If you, if you were looking for a, I'm going to call it, well, it's a book, but it's a resource actually more than anything. It's one of those things that you kind of keep on your shelf and you go, Hey, I want to do this. And you pull it Greg's book and you actually kind of look it up and it'll be in a section of, you know, how you can, you know, different ideas and techniques that you can use in order to, to accomplish the goal that you're looking for, you know, whether it's in mindfulness or, you know, bringing your energy up in stress response and sleep and exercise and food and all that kind of stuff. Like it's a complete resource. And I did try that. It's harder than, than, than I thought like the, that hold for four seconds at the top and at the bottom, especially at the bottom, it's like, poof. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. You know, it's really so fascinating. The, the hold on exhale is so hard, but the really cool thing about that is that when you get comfortable with holding your breath on exhale, cause it's not like you, you're out of air, right? And so to hold your breath while you're out of air, goes against all of the instincts that we have. But the really interesting thing is that really calms you down because if you can learn to relax 
during the moment while you're holding your breath on that exhale, it really helps you to learn how to settle the mind under difficult circumstances. It's actually brilliant training for your mindset and for your mental strength. So that's one of the really cool little hacks that you can get out of that box breathing technique is is just getting comfortable and relaxing into the discomfort of what it feels like to hold your breath on that exhale. So thanks for bringing up the point about mental strength because you know, you're right, it is hard. <laughs> and in your moonshot, mental health is one of the key elements of your moonshot. What do you think are the biggest things that people can do? You know, you talked about this breathing and holding on the exhale being good for your mental strength. And me, I just kind of equate mental strength to mental health. And I might be wrong there because what do I know? But I'm curious, you know, for people who are struggling with mental health, maybe we could flip into that because it's a good segue from breathing and utilizing breathing for your mental health. But also, you know, what else are the contributing factors that, you know, you kind of talk about that would, that would address that? Yeah. So let's just set some parameters around the conversation around mental health. So we have mental illness, which is like severe depression, manic depression, schizophrenia, personality disorders. Like that is a clinical issue that should be see a clinical psychologist, see a psychiatrist, get some support because that is a medical condition. It's far beyond what I'm uh, trained to deal with. So we'll just separate that from the conversation and acknowledge that it exists and definitely get support. If you're struggling with that, then there's mental health, which is variations in our mood throughout the course of the day, the week, the month, the year. And that includes things like mild to moderate depression and anxiety. And so Again, I'm a physiologist, not a psychologist, so I'm going to talk about the things that in the research show influence that from my realm, which is largely exercise and breathwork and nutrition and sleep. And what we have discovered is that there's a couple really cool things. We know that physical activity and exercise is spectacular for our mental health. A really cool study that came out a few years ago that shows that when we exercise three, four, or five times a week for 45 minutes, that results in the lowest mental health burden. So basically the lowest risk for depression and anxiety. So if you want to optimize your mental health using exercise, then that three, four, or five workouts a week, 45 minutes at a time is the number that we're shooting for. Sort of the, the, the number of sessions and the volume in that session. The cool thing is, is that study broke it out into eight different types of exercise, gardening, housework, walking, running, weights, yoga, does, and what they found was, doesn't matter what you do. It's the exact same effect. So when it comes to our mental health, any type of physical activity whatsoever makes a difference and improves our mental health. The cool thing also is it also improves your mental performance. So another study showed, uh, looked at 5,000 school kids in the United Kingdom and showed that for every 15 minutes of physical activity that was added to the school day, GPAs went up a quarter grade point to a maximum of one full grade point, 60 minutes beyond which there were no further benefits. So again, imagine if we could sprinkle physical activity into our days at work and at school, my gosh, we could elevate mental health so much and also improve cognitive performance at the same time. So that's the mind-body connection in action, basically. And one of the most important things that I recommend for people when it comes to optimizing our mental health is a consistent exercise routine. It doesn't even need to be exercise. It can just be physical activity. 
increase the number of steps that you're taking throughout the day. It doesn't matter where you're starting. It could be 500, it could be 7,000. We're just looking to nudge that up a little bit more. Once you're at 21,000 steps a day, that's a half marathon. You can pump the brakes, right? We don't need to go up to that level, <laughs> but uh, just a little bit there makes a huge difference. And, and exercise is a really incredible, easy, free way for us to improve our mental health. You were talking about that. It's interesting that I'm, I think differently about it when you express it that way, because, you know, for me, when somebody says exercise, it's like I go into the gym, toss some iron around and work out and, or I'll grab my boxing gloves and work on the heavy bag a bit and all that kind of stuff. And if I'm not either drenched in sweat or the next day, I'm not in complete and total pain from my workout, you know, I feel like, oh shit, I didn't do enough. But really, when we we're talking about mental health, what kind of popped into my head was, is this as much about physiology or is it, you know, by getting out gardening, like what, like I look at gar and I'm not trying to be judgmental, but when I, you say gardening, I'm like, uh, that's not exercise, <laughs> but, but I know it is. And I, I know I'm wrong. So any listeners out there? Yeah. You try a deep squat while you're weeding and to see how that feels. But if you're like, if you're down on your hands and knees and, and like, you know, leaning and grabbing stuff and like it counts. And I come from the same background as you, like, you know, high performance athlete growing up, a physiologist for Olympic level athletes. Like I've done all the heart rate measurements, the blood lactate measurements, the heart rate zones, the long workouts, the aerobic, anaerobic, alactic zone training. Like I've done all of that stuff. But when it comes to our mental health, what we have discovered is that it doesn't matter what you do. Anything has a benefit. And interestingly enough, research from McMaster University in Hamilton, uh, Canada has shown that as little as 60 seconds of exercise has positive physiological benefits. And there's emerging research that shows that very short bouts of physical activity improve our mental health as well. And so, yes, there's no question. Boxing, so good for you. And man, you can really burn some stress when you're hitting things with boxing gloves on absolutely no question about that. A good hard run, fabulous for your cardiovascular system. Lifting weights, spectacular for your muscles and your bones. Interval training, great for your buffering capacity, for your heart, your lungs, your blood, and also for your brain. All of those different modalities of exercise have unique benefits. Mix it up, do whatever that you love, because the more that you do it, the better that things are going to get. The really cool thing is, though, they all improve your mental health. So anything where you're doing physical activity reduces your risk for depression, reduces risk for anxiety, can relieve anxiety in the moment, can relieve depression in the moment. And so we really need to lean into that. Not saying don't take your medications, don't follow your doctor's recommendations. Absolutely do that. Just use physical activity as an amplifier to improve all of those benefits as well. I love what you were talking about there, which was really hit home to me because my perception, which is not the right perception, is I got to do, you know, X plus times 10 in order to, but you don't. You could, you can garden, you can shovel the driveway, you can go out for a walk, you can do things that sit-ups, push-ups, whatever it is, push-ups against the wall. And, and for those, it's this is the perfect time of the year to have this discussion because people who are new into looking at an exercise routine and, or if you know somebody who's struggling with mental health, participate with them, get them out. Let's, let's go for a walk. Let's do something that's going to exert their energy. And, and if you're a beginner or if you're young, if you have young kids or you have older parents, these are important pieces to get them up, get them moving. And it doesn't have to be a massive workout. It could be just, and you, you said 45 minutes, I think, right? Three to four or five times a week. 
The research says three, four, or five times a week, 45 minutes, lowest mental health burden. But as you mentioned, it doesn't really matter, to be honest with you. Like if you go for a walk and talk with a friend who's not feeling very well right now, they're going to feel better after walking and talking to you. So do that. I remember when my kids were young and we were struggling to find time and energy to get our workouts in, I would go with my kids to the park. And I remember one day very clearly trying to replicate everything that Ingrid did when she was three years old in the park for 90 minutes. (laughs) I was shattered. Do you know kids do plyometrics constantly for like and wind sprints and deep squats and all sorts of like stuff. And it was exhausted. That's an option for people who have young families. And, you know, as our parents age, and maybe even, uh, you know, I've done some work in, in old age homes and seniors residences over the last few years, especially coming out of uh, the pandemic and lockdowns, getting someone to do any type of physical activity in those facilities has benefits for neurocognitive function, even for people with Alzheimer's and dementia. So throughout the entire lifespan, right from the park when you're a kid, all the way through till we're approaching the end of our lives, this movement will benefit us. Our bodies are designed to move. And thinking that the body and the brain and or your mind are separate is not true. The brain is a physical structure. It is connected to your body through the nervous system. Your thoughts influence your immune system. Your immune system influences your brain. There's a gut-brain connection. When we move our muscles, the brain comes to life. So when we think of ourselves holistically as this entire package of the brain, the skin, the spinal cord, your bones, your muscles, your digestive tract, everything starts to come together. That's why I wrote a book called The Ripple Effect. It's about sleep and how that affects all of the aspects of our physiology, nutrition, how that can help us get healthier and to improve our well-being, movement, and how that can spark so many positive things mentally and physically. And then, of course, how we think, right? The ability to focus and eliminate distractions being so important in this era of constant unrelenting distraction. So this holistic approach to health and well-being where we don't worry so much about getting in those hard workouts. And like I said, I've done them all, right? Like I've, I've been in that space for so long. But what I've come to realize is that if you're training for a marathon, that's fantastic. If training for the Olympics, absolutely hit the right target heart rate zones. But for most people, and I mean like most people, like 90% of the population, we just need to move a little bit more. And we've got busy lives. We have jobs and families. And so getting in a 90-minute workout where you're pouring sweat into the floor of the gym just simply isn't realistic for the vast majority of people. So how can we incorporate this into our days? Go for a little walk at lunch. Stand up when you take a phone call. Stretch a little bit on the living room floor while you're watching a show. Maybe do a few standing push-ups on the park bench while your kids are playing in the park. Go for a little bike ride on the weekend. One of the things I saw sort of middle of the pandemic that made me so happy amidst all of the challenges of that time was that there were so many families that went out for bike rides in my neighborhood. Like I would go out and I would see the you know, dad riding and mom riding with, uh, with their kids. I was like, that is fantastic. I really hope that we carry that forward. So that's just a little reminder to us that we need to judge ourselves a little bit less when it comes to the workouts that we're doing and just get more physically active. Of course, if you have a goal 
to compete in jujitsu. You're going to need to learn the jujitsu techniques and you're going to need to get into the gym and get on the mat and do the training to get strong and get flexible and learn the, learn the tactics. And that's all spectacular and fantastic. However, I also believe against the background of that, there's general health and well-being mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And one of the foundations for achieving that literally is just simply take more steps. It's interesting from reading your book. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, well, I'll frame this as this way. I, I'm not a walker. Like I hate it. Like I have really, I'm like, fuck, like I'll go to the gym and I'll spend my half hour in the gym versus going out walking. But you do talk a lot about mindfulness and getting out in nature and going out for walks. And I, I just, I really want to hit on this in, in that there are many areas in people's lives. Uh, and then I'd love for you to chime in on this, but where, you know, what you do today from a physicality or just, just getting out and moving aspect is what you will do tomorrow more than likely. And, and actually probably less, you'll probably do less later than you will now. So if you're in your forties now and you're not taking time to get out, walk, exercise, you know, do, do whatever. By the time you're 60, 70, 80, you're probably not going to do more. One of our businesses that we're in is in the senior care business. It's one of the businesses that we own. And we see it all the time. We see, you know, people who are thriving in their seventies and their eighties. And we see people who are really in dire shape in their seventies and their eighties. And, and a lot of it has to do with the things that like, I think all, everything you just mentioned there, obviously, which is, you know, exercise, first of all, being out moving. Uh, on a consistent basis with purpose and sleep, food, nutrition. I mean, those are the kinds of things that like, if people don't really pay attention to those rituals and those habits now, they sure as hell are not going to do it later down the road. Maybe you could jump in because I know there's a lot to unpack with what you said earlier about that. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. One of the core principles that I really, really, really believe in is the aggregate of 1% gains accumulating small wins and being consistent. Over the most recent holidays, I had a chance to go spend some time with some friends. And I, I was amazed at the relentless consistency with which they did a, very, a few very specific things. So one of the guys, every single morning at eight o'clock would go get into, they lived in the mountains, in the river near where they lived. It's the middle of winter in Canada. It was really cold. The water was icy. Every single day, eight o'clock in the morning, he was in the river. Another one of the guys would go for a run every single day, 7 a.m. That was his thing. So relentless consistency without question was serving those people. That's the discipline of a practice. And I really believe that this 1% win over an extended period of time gives you compound gains for your body and mind, your mind, your emotions, your health and your, and your well-being. And the cool thing is, is that 1% of your day is about 15 minutes. So it's not a lot, but we've learned that, for example, 15 minutes of walking is enough to reduce your risk of 13 different types of cancer by 24 to 40%. 60 minutes of physical activity will cut your risk of cardiovascular disease in half. So little practices like this done consistently over a long period of time are magic. Peter Atia's new book, Outlive talks about the decathlon, and he's got a number of different activities that he wants to be able to do when he's 80. For example, being able to get up off of the floor is a powerful predictor of how long 
you will live. Uh, so when we think about this in terms of our lifespan, investing a little bit of time and energy right now buys you years of functionality when we get older. And I don't want to have a long, slow decline into the end of my time here and in, in this particular lifespan. So it's like 80 great years, one bad day to me sounds pretty good rather than 80 years where the last decade is a long, slow decline struggling with chronic illness. And although it's really hard for us to motivate ourselves today to try to prevent something that may or may not happen 30 years from now, that is a difficult thing for us to achieve. So remember, or try to find the things that you love. Like Dwayne, you said you love getting in the gym and throwing the steel around and hitting the punching bag. So like, do that. That's amazing. Don't feel like you need to go for a walk just because I'm talking about it on this podcast. If you're listening to this right now, think about what you love. If you like riding your bike, ride your bike. If you like going for walks, go for walks. If you like doing yoga, fantastic. Gardening, lean more into that. Find your thing and just go with it. And you may not do this forever. You might be in a triathlon right now. That's okay. A little bit later, maybe you're going to get into a little bit more resistance training in the gym and that will be your thing. But you also mentioned nature. And when we do these activities outside, actually, you don't even need to do these activities outside. When you get outdoors into nature in and of itself, nature bathing or forest bathing or Shinrin-yoku as the practice is known in Japan, also elevates our health and well-being. The plants around us outdoors release molecules like phytoncides, which we inhale. And when they get into our lungs and our bloodstream, they increase the strength and effectiveness of our immune system to such a degree that nature bathing elevates our white blood cell counts and specifically natural T killer cells, which attack cancer inside of our bodies. We also know that getting out into nature improves our resistance to upper respiratory tract infections like colds and flus. So nature elevates all of this. It's another one of those little amplifiers that take everything that we do and bring it to another level. Another really cool thing about getting out into nature is that it gets us out of alpha brainwave state, which is hustle, focus, execute, getting stuff done where we feel stressed and down into, by the way, important state to be in if you need to get stuff done. Every once in a while, we need to blow through our email inbox. That's totally cool. But then to recover and regenerate from that, to heal, repair, and regenerate, to get out of stress performance mode down into recover and regenerate mode, we need to be in an alpha brainwave state, which is about 50% as activated. That's when you can be strategic. That's when you can learn. That's when you can reflect. That's when you can deconstruct. These states block each other as well. But nature helps us to get into that alpha brainwave state. Just think about how easy it is. If you're out for a walk and you sit on a park bench and you're in a, you know, a park where there's trees around, how easy is it for you to sit there for a few minutes and just look around you and allow your mind to settle versus if you're in your office in a built environment? Again, important to be there. We need jobs, got to pay the bills, but we also need to recover and regenerate as well. So nature is so powerful for us and really one of those things that we can use to elevate our health improve our well-being, and if you actually do this strategically, improve your performance mentally as well, I think, for sure. Can you just jump in a little bit deeper on the alpha and beta waves? It's beta, right? Alpha and... There's actually five states. The one thing that, as you were talking about, it, I understand our listener base 
you know, 80 to 85% of our, of our listeners are, you know, either business owners or they're striver driver people, you know, the alpha fuckers that are just, they can't shut it off. And, and I'm, I, I was like that. I'm still like that, but I'm much better than I was. My perception of, you know, people went, you know, stop and smell the roses. I'd be like, yeah, smelling the roses for lazy people, you know, patience and all that shit. It just wasn't my groove at the time. And it wasn't until I got older that I really saw the value, but I think it cost me. Like it cost me, I think it cost me mentally. I think it cost me uh, uh, cognitively. This, you know, staying in that alpha state for so long, repetitively over and over and over again for decades, I think really did have a negative impact. And I would love to help people understand this a little bit more so that they don't have to go through what I went through because there is a different way, you know, slash potentially better way. Um, because there's, while you're in an alpha, there's so many other things that you're missing from an awareness perspective. And I just wonder, like you talked a lot about this before, and I would love for you to share a little bit about this information because it's super powerful. Yeah. I think day two on uh, the summit that you and I were at the whole day from my perspective was, was around this topic. So I'm so glad that you brought it up. And this is hyper relevant for business owners. So let's just talk to the business owner. I'm a biz, small business owner. I've got you know two companies that I'm that I'm running right now. So I get it. It's a struggle. It's a huge challenge. You're 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 the CFO, CEO, CTO, like all of it. So I get it. I'm with you on on that. And understanding of the state that you want to be in to accomplish certain tasks, I believe elevates your performance, but also actually unlocks most of the challenges that people are faced with when it comes to your health and well-being. And we know that being a business owner and an entrepreneur is really hard on your mental health. The statistics are not good for entrepreneurs. It's a hard road that we are choosing to travel with massive benefits. I'm on that road for a reason. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. Hopefully. Knock on wood. We'll pretend for now <laughs> that it is. Yes. Shall we do that? Just assume that things are going to be awesome. Right. Imagine if it all works out. So the first state to think about is beta brainwave mode, 16 to 30 hertz or cycles per second of electricity flowing through the neurons in the brain. It's a very activated state. This is your hustle, focus, execute, get stuff done. I'm in full on beta brainwave mode now speaking to you. I'm thinking about things. I'm planning. I'm analyzing your questions. Like I'm in performance mode and that's all good, but it's stressful, right? Like I've got adrenaline going on. There's cortisol in my system. These are my performance hormones. And this is great because it's enabling me to focus better. My physiology is activated. My psychology is focused. It's phenomenal for getting stuff done, but it comes at a cost in terms of the amount of energy that I'm expending. So I will be tired. And in the hormones that are coursing through my body right now, specifically adrenaline and cortisol, which are amazing for instantaneous performance, but not great for your long-term health. So after this time where you and I are on this zone and performing right now and thinking and trying to serve people, I am definitely going to go into a recover and regenerate period, probably going to go hit the sauna, probably going to go do some mindfulness and meditation, maybe even take a nap so I can hit the gym later and, and do a good job there too. Then we slow down a little bit <sighs> by about 50% and get into an alpha brainwave state. This is commonly achieved when we do meditation practice. This is what we look to try to achieve when we're in breath work. When we're in nature, it really helps us to drop down into this alpha brainwave state. This is when you can be strategic. This is when you can plan effectively. This is when you can reflect and journal. 
This is when you can deconstruct and understand what went well and what didn't go well, which you can't do when you're stressed. So it's a much, much calmer state. Nature helps us to get into the state. Journaling helps us to get into the state. Mindfulness and meditation help us to get into this state. Being around people that you love and trust helps us to get into this state as well. And alpha brainwave mode is critical for entrepreneurs and business owners because we need to be strategic. We need to navigate the world. We need to plan. We need to deconstruct what's working and what isn't working. I also believe that this is a powerful tool for all of us because we've spent so much time in beta mode. Hustle, focus, execute, get stuff done, right? That whole hustle culture. And not to mention the world has been on high alert for four years due to the news cycle. And there are no question, there are some major societal and global uh, geopolitical issues that we need to address to make the world a better, safer place where everyone can reach their potential. But I truly believe that the only way that we're going to come up with solutions to those problems is for us to step back, slow down, calm down, open up our thinking so we can think peripherally and understand what are all of the challenges here? And most importantly, where do the opportunities lie? Where can I make the world a better place? Where can I help people? Where can I serve people? How can I be my best in order to help others to the greatest extent of my personal potential? Then there's actually one other state called a theta brainwave state. Theta brainwave state is, again, 50% even less activated than in alpha state. It's kind of like when you're daydreaming, you're ideating, when your mind is wandering. And this is when you can be creative innovative, and when you can solve problems. So think about stressful situations at work, and you need to come up with a solution to that issue. You're probably not going to come up with the solution while you're going through your email inbox. You're probably going to come up with a solution to that problem if you go for a walk and you leave your phone on your desk, and you walk for long enough that your mind begins to settle, By the way, it doesn't have to be walking. It can be cycling. It can be any type of rhythmic, repetitive movement. That helps the brain to settle, decreases the rate with which electricity cycles through the brain, and it helps you to enter into this theta brainwave state where you can have those eureka moments that are you coming up and putting two and two together to solve the problems to actually make a difference in your work, in your life, in your relationships and ultimately unlock those that true human potential. Slow down even further into a delta state, that's when you're asleep, but we don't need to talk about that right, that right now. Um, but those are the different states. And the, I think that the key for exponential entrepreneurs navigating a lot of uncertainty in the world as it exists right now, the magic is giving yourself permission to get out of beta mode, which is where the vast majority of the world is operating right now, into alpha so that you can learn and be strategic and plan. And then even sometimes down into a theta brainwave state, really chill so that you can come up with new solutions to old problems and be creative and innovative. And that I think is the path forward even more so in this era of artificial intelligence. And I think artificial intelligence most likely will probably take over the beta brainwave mode stuff. So the more that we can be alpha and theta now, the more likely it is we're going to be successful moving forwards. That's an interesting comment for sure. So let's, I want to unravel that one before we do. I just, the one thing I wrote, I was making notes when you were saying this stuff and 
dude, this is great stuff because I, I mean, I very seldom take notes in podcasts because I try to be really into the conversation, but you're giving such great information here. It's so good. But the one thing that hit me was when you were talking about beta and I, and I, and I think it hit me as much because I was stuck in that area. So, so, so often, how can people actively reduce, what could they use? Like what's influencing beta in the world today? You talked a little bit about news. You know, one thing that I stopped doing six years ago was I stopped watching the news. I don't watch the news on TV. I think it's complete horseshit. I will read some articles every once in a while. I very, I'm on social media very little, but I'm just curious, like as a business owner, like do people like drama? People like chaos. They're attracted to it. And not everybody does, but many people do. What are some of the things that they actively should be paying attention to? to avoid because I know, I mean, I could list off a whole bunch of friends that are, you know, business guys that they're just like, they're sending me articles and go, look at this fucking shit. And da, da, da. it's like, dude, like, I don't even want to see this stuff. I don't. So maybe you can, can you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. This might be one of the grand challenges of our time that's controlling our attention. Right. And we are humans and we're, you know, our evolutionary biology is such that the humans who survived were the ones who heard the crackling in the branches around the campfire and looked and saw the saber-toothed tiger and saw the negativity and were aware of what was going on. And the people that pay, didn't pay attention to that were the ones that, you know, were the, la the last ones running and got eaten. And so from an evolutionary biology perspective, we are programmed to notice negativity. We are programmed to notice things that are threats, legitimately so. Like it's, it kept us alive. And the difference now is that it's not a saber-toothed tiger. It's a news headline, but our physiology reacts the exact same way. When information goes in through your eyes, through your ears, it gets turned into electrical pulses, which funnel through a structure in your brain called the amygdala, which makes decisions about whether or not the things happening in our environment are a threat. And if it perceives that they are a threat, it activates a cascade of effects throughout the hypothalamic pituitary axis, in case anyone wants to look that up, which is your st sympathetic stress system, <laughs> nervous system, which activates you to, it's the fight or flight sense system, right? And so it gets you ready to run or fight because it legitimately thinks that it is a threat. The problem is, is that if your boss gives you or a client gives you some feedback that you don't like, you can't run or fight. You have to breathe. You have to be calm. You have to interpret that information. You have to respond, not react. We can't react the way our physiology was designed to. Because if we did run or fight, the cool thing is, is that contracting your muscles breaks down the stress hormones and then gets rid of them such that after a run, you feel so much better. But if we never break those down through physical activity, they keep coursing through our body. And that's what causes chronic disease, which is why 70% of the deaths in the Western world are related to stress-related illnesses, cancer, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome are all related to these, this physiological challenge that we're faced with. So what do we do? What we do is we leverage the media psychology effect, which is that whatever information is coming in through our eyes and our ears changes the brain via neuroplasticity. All of the information coming in triggers our brain to adapt and change positively or negatively. If you are binge watching the evening news, that will make you more predisposed to noticing negativity. But if imagine you did something different and instead of watching the evening news, the headlines of fear 
that are designed to make sure you don't change the channel so that they can continue to serve you ads. Imagine that you didn't do that for an hour and instead you read the biographies of some of the greatest people in human history for a year. What would your psychology would be like? Who would you be in a year from now instead of focusing in on the negativity you actively learned? I, as well as you, will never watch the evening news. I don't even listen to the news on the radio. I quickly scan the news headlines on BBC because I think it's a reasonably moderate news source in our world today. People might disagree with me, but it's sort of like the, the most moderate I one I could find. Um, so that I'm aware of what's going on in the world. I want to know what's happening in the world. I need to be aware that there's a, a challenge in the Middle East, that there's challenges in Eastern Europe, that there are societal issues that we need to address. But those don't change my day-to-day work. My day-to-day work is teaching people how to be healthier so that they can do the best that they can to help other people. And that's how I'm going to make a positive difference in the world. Every second that I spend on external negativity that I cannot control is a waste of time. Sharing negativity into the world is not going to change anybody's opinion. And sharing my views on whatever that situation happens to be, is probably not going to change anyone's opinion either. So instead of recycling the news into my social media feed, I'll post an article about how to get a good night's sleep because I think that's going to help people more than others. Controlling your attention, defending your attention right now is an uncommon advantage in an era of constant unrelenting distraction that leverages algorithms that are built to capture and hold your attention. And so defending yourself in terms of delete the social media apps from your phone. I did that. I'm a broadcaster, not a consumer when it comes to social media. That will make a difference. Auditing who in your circle has access to your brain. If your friends are challenging you, supporting you, encouraging you, inspiring you, brilliant. Let's let them into our calendar. We have maybe have people that we absolutely love, but perhaps they're speaking about things that doesn't help you right now. You know what? It's okay for you to not spend as much time with those people. Similarly, what podcasts are you listening to? Who do you follow on social? Are they informing you? Are they inspiring you? Are they making your life better? This is really hard work to figure out. Unfollow Friday is a great practice, right? Just go through the feeds and delete block everything that is negative, and that will definitely improve your life massively. You and I have a common friend, Stu Saunders, and uh, he and I were at an event, a Tony Robbins event in, in Las Vegas, and we went through our, our, our Twitter feed and, and un, literally unfollowed hundreds of people that weekend just to try to clean up the influences on our, our psychology. So that's definitely something for all of us. I was at a school last night doing this work teens to try to help them understand that what they're consuming on TikTok, for example, social media platforms, not not relevant, but it's the content that you're consuming. Who are you consuming? Who's got your attention? Who are you allowing into your brain? And let's make sure that that is fantastic, awesome, inspiring, informative. What books are you going to read this year? What articles do you want to read and or write even? What influence do you want to have in the world? Let's make it informative, positive, uplifting so that we can influence the people that we can influence in a positive way to elevate the world, support people, solve problems, and ultimately make the world a better place. I'm glad you said all that. And I was really, really pushing to get you on this podcast in January because 
because uh, you know the new year sparks these kinds of uh, thoughts in people. They 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 really start to look at making some New Year's resolutions and. But this piece, guys, and I, and actually I like that timing because most people, I, I forget what the statistic is, but it's like 87% of people abandon their, their New Year's resolutions within like two weeks or something like that. It's an enormously crazy uh, statistic. And, and I probably completely blew that one, but, it, but it's, it's nuts. And this is good advice, guys. What Greg is saying here is, I think Jim Rohn said it years ago, and I'll also bastardize this quote, but it was, you know, he said, you know, you must be stand guard on the gates of your mind. Mm. And now more, no, more than ever, there are things at play, whether for good or for evil, that are trying to uh, grab our attention. And you have to be self-selecting what you allow your attention to go towards. You only have so much time, energy, and focus. And, and what Greg is saying, you know, like go through your feeds and down, uh, offload this stuff. It, it, it is, it's not serving you, you know, to that point, it's like, you know, where do the statistics take us in terms of mental health? Like, is it getting, is it going to get better? Is this, are we, you know, with social media, I know that's, I mean, that's a completely asinine question probably, but for me, I'm so fearful when I look at, especially youth today, you know, where they're going, what's happening in schools where their attention's being drawn to and how do we get a hold of it? And you kind of just talked about AI and, you know, beta, beta waves. And, and so I'd love to maybe jump into that conversation a little bit if, if you don't mind. No, I, I'm, I'm happy to chat about, about that. A couple of years ago, I was at a session at the hospital for sick children and was with some people that were discussing, you know, what's going to happen after the pandemic. And when we had a chance to talk about you know, what's going to happen, we got some data that suggested that there would be a wave of depression, anxiety, burnout, some mental health effects of everything that has collectively happened over the last little while. Are you talking about post-COVID? I'm talking about post-COVID. So like think okay. about the end of the pandemic. Now we're sort of plus 12 to 18, 24 months. We're definitely at the back end of the wave of the impact that that had on, on all of us. So I am very hopeful that things are going to get better. I also think that in order for things to get better, we have to continue to improve our world, make the world a better place, and really recognize that it's harder for some people to do that for, and for others. So I'm working towards actively making sure that there are no systematic limitations on human potential. If there's anything in society that systematically blocks people from reaching their potential, that stuff's got to go because I believe that everyone should be competing on a level playing field. And all of us then are in a meritocracy that enables the best people doing the best work to serve the most people and make the biggest difference in the world. So that's what I'm hopeful happens. I do believe that we are now in possession of information that makes it possible for us to improve our mental health. We know that exercise makes a difference. We know that eating healthy food, which is really hard for some people right now, especially in this inflationary environment that's made food so expensive, right? Like it's really harder to do that. We need to be a bit more strategic with trying to make that happen. We know that nature makes a difference. I'm really hopeful that we can work with governments to build more parks, more accessible places for people to be able to go outside and move with their families in parks in, and around places that make us better. We know what we need to do. We have the data. As a society now, the decision becomes, are we going to 
make the world a better place. Like, what's the opposite of a hospital? It's a park, right? The, what's the opposite of a hospital? It's a gym. It's a gym in the school where the kids go to play, right? It's the playgrounds. It's all of these places. We know that when we're in these environments, our physical, mental, and emotional health gets better. We also know that strong social connections are some of the strongest predictors of mortality. Your social connections are a stronger predictor of overall mortality than quitting smoking, quitting drinking, doing cardiac renal rehab after a cardiac event, even physical activity. We can build these networks of people around us in an environment where social media is making us feel more lonely than ever. Ironically enough, even though we're more connected than we've ever been, we're lonelier as well. Because I'm not sure if these relationships that we have via our devices are as strong or as powerful in terms of their benefit for us as when we see people in three dimensions. We have the information. We know what we need to do. Hopefully, collectively as a society, schools, businesses, homes, we can make some decisions to not need hospitals anymore. Imagine that. Like one of my dreams is to be able to walk into sick kids and it's empty. Right? There's no one there. All right, there's nothing to do. Where let's let's go do something else, right? Like, how cool would that be as like a vision to walk into a hospital and it's empty? Of course, there's genetics and all those sorts of things. Some people are going to get sick. We need to take care of them. But imagine if we could reduce the need for it, get rid of chronic diseases through physical activity, through healthy nutrition, through eliminating food deserts, through educating people and supporting people to make decisions around a healthy lifestyle that extends our lifespan and our health span, which is how long you live without a chronic disease. We know what to do. It's just a question of doing it, building the networks of people around us that do it with us to make it inevitable that we are healthy and successful. So that's my big rant. <laughs> that's my vision for the future. We'll see what happens. You make such an interesting like statement there. You know, Part of my brain was is that even possible? I mean, obviously you said there's genetic things that are going to go on and obviously we'll need hospitals, but what do you think, the question that kind of popped in my head was like, what would be the percentage and say in 20 or 30 years, if people, but if they got ingrained, they really bought into this process and they really saw the significance. And I think sometimes they go, well, it doesn't make a difference anyways, what I eat, how I breathe, how I work out, da, 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 what kind of difference is it going to make? But it does make a difference. And where do you think we could get as a society in terms of our health and our lifespan and our, uh, you know, our wellness, our whole wellness platform? Where do you think we could get? Like, what would be a prediction that you might have based on your experience in history and education and well, yeah, my prediction is probably going to be a lot different than what I hope. But an example I think that's, that gives me the most hope is what happened in a Baltimore school board a number of years ago. And what the people running the school board noticed was that there was violence in the schools, there were behavior issues, there, the staff was spending more time dealing with issues around behavior and violence than they were around teaching. and. They had no budget to do anything differently. And so what they did was they implemented mindfulness and meditation programs in those schools. They replaced detention with meditation. And over the course of a reasonably short period of time, 
the violent incidences in those schools that adopted these practices decreased by about 80%. It's on the front cover of Time magazine. Just look up Baltimore School Board Meditation and you'll find the articles. And so I am hopeful that we can implement some of these ideas. It's why I work with school boards, why I work with businesses. When, when we create environments with children, with our employees, with our families, with our communities, where practices like these get installed, even in areas with tremendous socioeconomic challenges, the, cool, the interesting thing is that physical activity is free. You just need to move. Meditation is free. Nutrition, without question, is challenging. Food deserts, prices going up, takes time to cook. All those sorts of things are, very, are, are challenging legitimately, and we need to address those. And we even see some of the tech companies now beginning to help people to use technology intentionally, not compulsively. Tech's not going away. AI is not going away. We're just at the very early stages of knowing how to use it. I believe we're undergoing a transformation in our society, much like we transitioned from agriculture to industry 100 years ago. We're now transitioning from industry into technology. And it's so early on, we don't really know how to use it and we're figuring it out. And I actually think we're going to look back upon these devices much the same way we look back upon smoking. Like, can you believe we actually did that? We allowed that to happen? No question. That's how we're going to look back upon this. So I'm hopeful. Examples like the Baltimore School Board give me great hope that we can actually do things that will make a massive difference uh, and that can be implemented right away. So I'm not willing to make a prediction right now. Because I think my prediction about what actually is going to happen, uh, unfortunately, isn't the direction that I want, want it to go. But I'm going to maintain hope and fill myself full of hope and do the work that I can to influence the people that I can influence, such that at the end of my time here on this planet, I can sit down on my, lie down on my, on my deathbed with my family surrounding me and have a little grin on my face, knowing that, you know, I did the best I could. I made a positive difference. I definitely moved the needle in the right direction so I can look my grandchildren in the eye and say, you know what? I did my very, very best. I think I made a difference. And hopefully they can take the mantle and continue to do so. Humanity has overcome unbelievable challenges. And I believe that we can overcome these challenges as well and without question, make the world a better place, but it'll require a slightly different approach than what we're doing right now. If anybody listening, Google that story on Baltimore School Board find out what they did and share that link with a teacher that you know, because these are the kinds of things that we need. These are the stories. I've never heard that story before. These are the kinds of things that we need to share. Those are the kinds of things that should go viral you know, along with, I mean, because it starts with our kids, with, with, with youth. In my opinion, schools should be, you know, there should be some type of, you know, get up out of your chair every 30 minutes and, you know, do like a, a slow standing jog or, uh, you know, some, whatever they used to call those you did in school. 20 seconds uh, of you, shadow boxing. Go, right? Yeah. Um, you know, let's gamify this kind of stuff in terms of, you know, in the classroom and get people moving their body, get them breathing properly, get them eating, you know, better. And that is a, that is a problem. Eating is going to be, nutrition is going to be one of the ones that, that is going to be difficult, but it's probably, you know, not the most important because as you said at the very beginning of the podcast, we have, a, you know, 85% of the population is kind of classified as inactive. So everything drops with a, it's like a pebble in a pond and those ripples cascade out. And that's going to be what's critical. When you talked about the Baltimore school, it's to me, that's, I mean, meditation, I think is great. I, I meditate. I use Sam Harris, uh, his app. 
and I found it to be unbelievably healthy for me from, from a, you know, especially from that perspective of, and I'm not surprised by what you said about the Baltimore school, which is like extending the time and distance between stimulus and response, you know, that is so critical. It's not just critical in business. It's critical in your intimate life. It's critical with your kids. Like these are the things, you know, if people could learn that one thing, it changed their life in a lot of ways. It would change the experiences that they have with their kids, uh, with their intimate significant other or their friends and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's, I mean, all these are great points. Sorry, I, don't, I try not to talk to you, but it's so interesting what you're saying, right? And when you were talking, it reminded me of the serenity prayer. It was, you know, one of the things that one of my mentors, uh, he wasn't an alcoholic. He, I'm not an alcoholic, but he was, he, he used it because it makes, it's common sense. You know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I, uh, that I can't change and the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And, and really it's about when you talked about earlier about the media, you can't change that stuff. And, and, and so don't get drawn into it. It's critical to just really focus on what you can change. Anyways, those were my drawouts from what you had said. And we probably need to wrap this up soon, but I do have a couple. Like, I, I really am interested in your thought processes from a perspective of the beta level performance, like in your, in your, or the beta waves in your brain and being stuck in performance and what it costs you in terms of energy and your hormones and all that kind of stuff. And you made a comment, and I did want to circle back to it, which was, you had a belief about AI will replace a lot of that function. And so the preparing for alpha and theta. And so I'd be really curious about your kind of perspective of where we're going to be going with AI. I have my own personal opinions and I see so many youth, so many kids nowadays, they're graduating like to become teachers and all that kind of stuff. And certainly teaching is not going to go away, but I think it's going to be done differently going into health sciences, which is your background. I'm curious, where, where do you think that's going to take us and the impact on these brainwaves and how we utilize ourselves? And I actually think AI is going to be tremendously helpful. It's no question it could potentially be really bad, but I think it's going to be tremendously helpful. For example, I've trained ChatGPT on my five books. I've told it, don't scrape from the internet, just create answers to my questions based on my own books. So it has to use my information that I've written, that I've researched, that I trust. And it's incredible. You can say, hey, write an article on cold. And funny enough, it draws from my five books and writes an article on cold, and it saves me a huge amount of time. I, of course, edit it to make sure that it's, that it's good, but it saves me that initial time necessary to go through and find the pages and the beta brainwave work stuff, the lighter hustle, focus, execute, get stuff done. I still do my own thinking. I still do my own planning, my own strategizing, my own creativity, my own problem solving. I think AI will end up taking over a lot of the beta brainwave hustle, focus, execute tasks that don't require higher levels of thinking, liberating us to spend more time in alpha, which is strategic thinking, learning, deconstruction, reflecting, and theta mode, which is problem-solving, creativity, innovation, and ideation. I actually think that's a good thing. Having said that, there are some challenges associated with that, which we're going to have to balance out. How does that play out in the workplace? Well, I actually think that it's going to enable us to do a lot more faster, and it's going to power us to truly unlock our potential by not spending time on things that we're not suited for. We can be creative. We can be solving these really cool problems. We can be stacking products to solve the individual needs of individual people. 
but it's going to be super disruptive in education. Imagine that if you're teaching grade six and you want to talk about ancient Egypt, instead of looking at it in a book or reading something, which I'm a big believer in reading, five books I've written, right? I'm a big fan in in the written word. But (laughs) imagine putting on glasses and going to ancient Egypt and looking around in 3D as they are building the pyramids. Game changer in terms of an experience for a child understanding and feeling what that must have been like. And we know that when people experience the perspective of others, empathy goes up. So that's possible. And I think education is one of the last areas that really hasn't been disrupted by technology. And I'm an educator, I was a professor for 20 years, and I'm actually quite hopeful that we're going to find a better way of teaching and unlocking human potential. Because as I mentioned, we're getting out of the industrial education. The purpose of education for the last 100 years has been to prepare people to work on a factory line, an assembly line. Now we need very, very different skills. The ability to learn rapidly anything will be crucial. The ability to be creative, to think critically, to analyze, to deconstruct, to be empathetic, to understand the challenges of others. I mean, that's the future. And believe it or not, I actually think technology might serve us in terms of our ability to teach that and do that better. So I'm still very, very hopeful. No question, we, the, the robots could take over and kill us all, right? In which case, this will be a funny podcast for them to listen to. <laughs> I'm actually quite hopeful. And you know, Adam is nine years old. And I want him to know this stuff, but I want him to use technology intentionally, not compulsively. And that's the battle because the algorithms are geared to capture and hold his attention and train him to be compulsively using the tech. So I will fight that with every shred of my being. My daughter's 13. She has no social media. She's absolutely not. Hard no. But she FaceTimes her friends so that she can be in video contact with the people that she loves. That's amazing. So intention, not compulsion. The world is changing rapidly. AI is here. It's not going anywhere. It's going to change business. It's going to change education. I believe it will automate beta brainwave mode tasks, hustle, focus, execute, get stuff done, liberating humans to spend more time in alpha learning, strategizing mode, and theta creative innovation mode. I actually think it's going to be better, but who knows? And I totally agree with you. That will be the big difference. Uh, you know, when AI starts to, you know, migrate in, into a larger portion of our life, I think you're right. And I, but I don't think we're ready for it. That's why I wanted you to kind of jump on that because people who are listening, whether you have kids or whether it's for yourself, the practice of being in alpha and the practice of getting into theta is a deliberate future benefit for you because you're going to have to exercise that muscle, if you will, or that ritual or that exercise in order to be able to get there and be there more often and feel comfortable there. Like I never felt comfortable there. Like to see, you said, oh, when you sit down on the bench for the first couple of minutes and you know, you know for two or three minutes, it was like, fuck that. I felt like shit. Like I was like, I, I know you feel something. like you're wasting your time, right? right? You know, cause you're brutal. so jacked and it I takes, know. it's an exercise and a practice. I used to have a, oh God, he was so smart. He passed away, but I had an amazing mentor. His name was Harold Cunningham, super smart guy in the car business. He was mentoring me through when I was really growing my business in my 30s and in my early 30s. I asked him if he would be my mentor and he said, I will 100%. I only ask you one thing and this is mandatory and, and, and you have to do it. 
every three months you have to go away for four days. And I was like, what? And he's like, yep, you got to unplug. Don't take any work with you. No phone, no computer. And not the phones were like they are today. Uh, but you, you know, you, you can't reach out, but you've got to unplug for four days every three months. And I was like, are you out of your fucking mind? Like it was, <laughs> I'm not doing that because I was, I just thought beta was the way to go like that. And at the time I didn't know the phrase beta, but it was like, it was go, go, go. It was hard, but it was the best thing I ever did. The millionaire weekend, go on a retreat, bring nothing with you and just spend two or three days ideating, thinking, journaling, deconstructing, planning, get away from everything. And the likelihood of you coming up with that million dollar idea is very, very high. Versus if you're stuck in your email inbox, doom scrolling through social and reading news headlines, right? Like imagine the difference of three days to think versus three days of the busyness of our lives at the moment. It's an absolute game changer. I love that idea. I do it once a year. I definitely should do it more often. And uh, I love the fact that he suggested doing it every three months, totally accessible and definitely something we want to give ourselves permission to do. Yeah. And I, and we do it. But I would say, honestly, I wouldn't say we unplug, uh, you know, fully, you know, we have unplugged fully and to do that fully. Well, now I can just be like, oh, this is great. This is the best time of my life, uh, getting rid of the phone. But, uh, but in the beginning when I was young and when I was really at it, it was very tough. And so for those of you who are listening, like this is really good information and very good advice, uh, that Greg, Dr. Wells is really giving you because this is going to be important stuff. and it's coming. AI is coming. It, it is going to de-lodge a lot of this go-go thinking, high-performance kind of stuff. And it's something that you want to prepare for and, and you should be conscious about it. Like I said, I'm super hopeful. I believe that humans overcome massive challenges. I look at how far humanity has come and it's a pretty incredible world that we've constructed. No question, massive issues that we need to deal with to make the world a better place. And then it's easier for some people than it is for others. And I want to make sure that everyone has access to their, their potential, wherever they happen to be, whatever their situation is. But I'm hopeful. I think that in a hundred years from now, I truly believe that we will be in a better place as a species than we are right now. So hopefully this conversation moved us a little bit in that direction. Well, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. You know, if I could just add into that last piece is, you know, I would encourage people like, you can only control what you can control. I mean, the world has always had shit going on and that's not going to change and it won't change in the future. Maybe it shouldn't change because honestly, if we didn't have tough times, you know, how, what would strengthen us? Uh, what would unify us? So I think sometimes you have to be grateful for the toughest things that come in life or the hardest things that come in life. Also knowing that, you know, there are some things start with you. I think that's kind of the message that I've kind of taken from you is guys start with you, be, uh, influence yourself. And I would say, honestly, I'm, grab a copy of powerhouse by Dr. Greg Wells. And I would, I would go through it and use it as a resource because I mean, and I never mentioned this earlier, but at the end of the book, you want to do one quick thing Buy the book. Go to page uh, 197, I think it is. I don't have that written down. I remembered it. At 197, uh, it starts with a 100-day challenge, and you created 100 days of 
reviewing pretty much everything that you talked about in the book and you give like, Hey, a day one, do this day two, day this day, day three, do this. And it's a collection of, uh, I read through it and I was like, Holy shit, this is, you know, rather than try to recreate the wheel, you should seriously buy this book and you should start with the 100 day challenge. If, if you're wondering like, how do I do this? What should I do? What are the first steps? And that's always, I think some of the biggest problem is we have a conversation and we talk about some really high level stuff and then people walk away from whether it's this podcast or something else and they go, well, how do I implement this? What do I do? Well, I'm telling you, buy the book. I'm not promoting this because, you know, Greg's going to make like two bucks off it probably. I don't know what your yeah. agreement is with your publisher. actually, but, but anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so that's not why Greg wrote the book, I'm sure. But in order to help yourself, and if you're struggling on how to make best action on what we talked about today, I honestly think you should buy this book and go to page 197 and just start. And it will walk you through all kinds of things, whether it comes to breathing, whether it comes to your movement. Uh, and your physicality, your energy, your sleep stress response, like it's all there. Thanks for putting this book together. Sorry, it's not, I'm, this is not a shameless plug for your book. I, I really believe that it is a really excellent guide to people who are, want to endeavor into this area of their lives and make themselves better. This is the new year. You know, go make it a new you. But it won't happen if you don't have something to just do every single day, put it in your calendar, block some time aside for it and get it done. Yeah. Thanks for the promo. I really appreciate it. Like you're right. I, you don't make, well, very few people are making millions of dollar, dollars off their book. Like JK Rowling did Harry Potter. Good job. That's awesome. But for the rest of us, we just do it to try to make the world a better place. And I've been doing it to try to put my knowledge in a place so that my kids can read it someday and you know it's still valid for them. So if you get the book and you really like it, that's awesome. Try the 100-day challenge. That would be absolutely amazing. Please ping me on social at Dr. Greg Wells, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever, and ask me questions because I learn from the questions that come in. And many times I know the answer and I can point you to the right part of the book to get the answer and the resources and the re references that you want. But every once in a while I get a question I actually don't know the answer to. And that's what keeps me learning, keeps me growing. So yeah, thank you if you get the book. That's awesome. Hope this podcast was helpful for all of you. And please reach out on social and, and ping me with your questions because I'd love to answer them and I'd, I'd love to keep learning. So yeah, it's been an honor to be here, Dwayne. Thank you so much, buddy. And uh, hopefully next time we do this, we can do it live and in person. Yeah, I'd love to have you up at the house. I mean, you're close enough. You're in Toronto and we'll have to, we'll do it in the summer or the spring. We'll do another podcast and then you bring the kids up and we'll go out in the boat and stuff like that and have a good old time. Um, but I, I just, I'm going to add one thing, sorry, to what Greg just said is guys, if you have any questions, sincerely, I'm telling you, Greg is one of the nicest people on the planet. He will respond uh, like he is unbelievably sincere about what he does. He's super passionate about what he does. And he will respond and answer your questions. And so can you just, again, give, where can they get you at? At Dr. Greg Wells? Yeah, my website's uh, drgregwells.com. So D-R-Greg, G-R-E-G, Wells, W-E-L-L-S.com. Podcasts is there, books are there, socials there. So that's probably the best place for people to go to get a handle on everything that I'm up to. Yeah, make 2024 your best year at and start with this 100-day challenge. It's pretty freaking awesome. Uh, dude, it. thanks so much for being here. I'm so grateful. I appreciate it. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. No, it's super fun. Uh, loved every second. Loved hanging out with you at the Epic conference and uh, hopefully we'll do it again next year. Yeah. That's another plug too. If you ever want to, anybody wants to go to an awesome conference, 
that's held in the first week of December ish. I think it's called Epic. It's done here in Toronto. Greg is is a faculty member. Yeah. Uh, so Greg member. is usually there. I think every year he's a faculty member. Uh, you'll be able to see him live. You'll see a bunch of other guys uh, live that are phenomenal, and it is uh, it's a great start to your end of year process to the beginning of the next year, if I will. <laughs> and it's amazing, uh, guys. So uh, you should do that, and you should tune in to Greg. And thank you so much, buddy. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to doing this again. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being with us. If you found value in the show and know a friend or a coworker who could benefit from the conversation, please share the link via text or on social media. Remember, each share creates a ripple effect of knowledge and inspiration. We'll see you next week. The views, information, or opinions expressed by guests during the Business of Doing Business podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Dwayne Kerrigan and his affiliates. Dwayne Kerrigan, or the Business of Doing Business podcast, is not responsible for and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. Listeners are advised to consult with a qualified professional or specialist before making any decisions based on the content of this podcast.